Your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to continue our study of the book of Ephesians, which is quickly coming to a close, or the last chapter now. And we're coming to a section, uh, or we've been been in a section that is talking to us about what it looks like to live a life under the influence of God. No longer to live like the Gentiles do, but Paul is telling us, here's how we should live as believers in the Lord. There ought to be a change, a difference in our lives, and and too often we're too much like the world. Uh, We have uh, looked at some general principles about our behavior. And now we're coming to a section, we came to it last week, uh, called a household table. And this, these household table or household code uh, is something that was not unknown in the culture at that time. It's not just a biblical thing, but it's a cultural thing uh, in uh, the ancient Roman Empire and the Greek, Greek Empire as well, that these... Uh, tables of instructions to household members on how they were supposed to behave. These were provided to give instruction to those who were members of a household. And we see that the Bible picks up on this and gives us a a Christian household code. We have it here in Ephesians. We've started looking at the relationship between husbands and wives, and today we'll look at children uh, and parents. Next week we'll look at servants and masters. And that should raise all kinds of questions in your mind. You'll have to come back next week to hear how I answer those questions about slavery, etc. Uh, but these, these household codes are here in Ephesians, also in Colossians, and in First Peter. And they're just compilations of instructions for household behavior. Now, if you're not a parent today, every, every one of us is a child, but not everyone is a, a parent, it, don't, uh, don't just tune me out. Uh, because we've got a word for everybody this morning, uh, something that I think would encourage everybody, as God's word is always an encouragement in our, in our walk with the Lord. So we come to chapter 6 now, and Paul turns his attention to the relationship between parents and children, and he says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, we, uh, we are missing some children today uh, from our worship service. Uh, last night was a prom, so I know we've got a few people uh, who, re- who are recovering from that. And, of course, we've had some bad weather this morning, and that has kept some people back. Uh, but there's something here for all of us. Uh, I see, I noticed the younger people in our crowd uh, pretty much com- compri- compri- uh, com- are comprised of my family. So the Lord always has exactly uh, who he wants in his worship service. And I think maybe they, uh, maybe they need to hear this. I don't know. We'll also talk to parents. And so I see my children can say their parents are here too and they need to hear something as well. We all have to hear this, and uh, we all make vows when we baptize a baby. Remember last week when the Steiners brought their child to baptism? Uh, we, we all raised our right hand and said we would help these parents uh, raise these children in the training and instruction of the Lord. So we may not be the exact parents of these children, 
but we also have made vows and promises to do just exactly what this passage is telling parents to do, to help them in that case. So there's something here for everybody and even more. But let's go back. The first point I want to make is this, that the pattern of the household table from Ephesians 5:23 down to beyond the, into the next section of chapter 6, this household table, uh, there's a pattern here. And it's important for the understanding of the biblical text. And this pattern uh, is this. Our earthly relationships are reflected in and governed by the relationship God has with his people. Now, we saw this last week. It was explicitly, explicitly stated in the instruction given to husbands and wives. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And wives are to respond to that love as the church is to respond to the love of Christ by, by submitting themselves to this loving uh, Savior or a loving husband, as it might be. So, too, the relationship between parents and children is reflected in and governed by the relationship between the Heavenly Father and His children. It doesn't exactly say it out loud in the text, but you can see the pattern, and we'll see it again next week as well. Those who embrace the salvation found in Jesus Christ are adopted into God's family. We are children. We aren't simply his friends, though that's true as well. We are God's children. He's our loving, forgiving, protecting, nurturing Heavenly Father. And as children of God, we are called to obey and honor our Heavenly Father. The human relationships between parents and children are to reflect the relationship between God the Father and his adopted children, just like a marriage relationship is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, how do we form our understanding of these glorious truths, particularly of what it means that God is our Heavenly Father and that we are children of God? And I think this is something uh, important to think about for a few minutes, especially in the context in which we live where there are so many broken homes. The dominant place we encounter the concept of fatherhood and childhood in this earthly life is through our own earthly relationships, of course. What the Bible says about God the Father, God the Son, and what it means to be a child of God can be largely influenced for good or bad by the experiences we have with our earthly fathers and mothers. Our own children, our own fatherhood, and our own childhood. Sometimes our experiences reinforce our understanding of the gospel, and sometimes our experiences hinder that understanding. I was reading an article this week by Don Johnson, who's written a book, how to talk to a skeptic, and in the book he outlines six different ways, or in this article he outlines six different ways, uh, or six different reasons that people reject Christianity. And I found one of those uh, reasons very interesting. He writes, Paul Vitz argues in his provocative and persuasive book, Faith of the Fatherless, the absence of a father or presence of a defective father, one who is abusive or weak or cowardly, for example, can play a major role in young men becoming atheists. Witz's de defective father hypothesis 
suggests that a broken relationship with one's father makes it very uh, difficult to accept a supposedly loving father in heaven. Witz developed this theory while studying the lives of history's great atheists, including Hume, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Russell, Sartre, Camus, Hobbes, Voltaire, Butler, and Freud. I'm sure some of those names are familiar uh, to you. All had fathers who died when they were very young or were defective in some major way. James Spiegel notes that this principle also applies to many modern-day skeptics as well, including Daniel Dennett and Christopher Hitchens. Of course, this does not mean that all fatherless kids will become atheists, and there are many qualifications and subtleties to Witz's argument that I won't get into here. However, his point is something to keep in mind when talking to skeptics. Humans naturally conceive of God according to the pattern set for us by human fathers. When that father isn't there or isn't loving, an atheist's disappointment in and resentment of his own father unconsciously justifies his rejection of God. In a culture where a third of our children are growing up without their biological dad and 40% of babies are born to unwed mothers, you can expect to run into this problem much more in the future. Now, if your parents were less than stellar examples... I know that it will not prevent you from knowing the fullness of the experience of being a child of God. Just because you may have had a bad father, that doesn't immediately mean uh, you know, it's, you're not going to ever grasp what it means to be a child of God because you didn't have a, a good example. And the reason is this. We walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, that's a scriptural way of saying it, but what, we, what I'm saying is this. We trust what the Bible tells us about God the Father and God the Son. The Bible tells us that our Heavenly Father is loving, good, merciful, kind, gracious, powerful, sovereign, righteous, faithful, wise, holy, etc. Our human fathers and those of us who are fathers all fall short in every one of these areas and more. We are not holy. We're not always kind and gracious and merciful, etc. Human fathers range from, from being more merciful, kind, and supportive and, and all the way down to those who are abusive tyrants. But no, but no matter how good the earthly father is, not one earthly father is as good and loving and merciful and holy as God the Father is. All human fathers fail to model God the Father perfectly. And where our human fathers succeeded in modeling God the Father, we can say, I can understand what the Bible says about my heavenly Father because my own father was like that. My father, my earthly father, was a very gracious man. And I, don't, I think I can grasp God's grace better because of that. But just because... I had that doesn't mean that somebody who didn't have that can't grasp God's grace at all either. Where our human fathers fail to be like our Heavenly Father, we say, well, I understand that the Bible is telling me that God the Father is not like my earthly father. He's, he's much different than my earthly father. And therefore, we go on the facts of the Bible, not our feelings or our experience. We say, yes, when I think of father, I think of this abusive tyrant. But the Bible tells me that God is not that way. So I need to trust what the Bible says and not my own experience of what a father is. We go on the facts of the Bible, 
not feelings or experience. And the Bible tells us that God is a loving Heavenly Father and so much more. And He's not the type of Father who, as this passage warns us, provokes His children to anger. Now the second point I want to make is this. First we saw the pattern there that earthly relationships reflect our human, our, our heavenly relationships or God, our heavenly relationships are reflected in our human relationships. The second point is this. The gospel makes a difference in the relationship of children to parents and parents to children. The gospel makes a difference. We're talking about uh, the relationship between uh, God and his children and that being reflected uh, in the relationship that earthly fathers have with their children, earthly parents have with their children. Uh, that's the gospel. The, the relationship is built on the basis of the gospel. And how we grasp and understand the gospel will make the, all the difference in how we relate to one another as parents and children and children to parents. I've given you a quote on the front of the bulletin, and I think I've, I've got a little bit more than, in what I'm going to read to you than what's there, but you can follow along for about two-thirds of it. The Apostle Paul believes that the obedience of Christian children to their parents is an active display either of the reality of the gospel that has taken root in their hearts or of a contrary reality that, that pervades. And then, of course, in the same way, how parents relate to their children reveals how deeply the gospel has permeated their own hearts in the way it flows out in their relationship to their children. So there's something, again, here bigger at stake than simply saving face, keeping from being shamed in the community, keeping your children out of jail, getting your children through school and started in a career and marriage of their own. There are larger gospel issues at play. For the Apostle Paul, the home, the marriage, the relationship of parents and children are perhaps the most significant ground. They're sort of ground zero for beginning to live out the gospel in one's life. One can say all kinds of things about what one believes, about what one professes, one can make all sorts of claims about one's own priorities and Christian experience, but those things really show in the context of the home. This, this uh, quote by Ligon Duncan is very enlightening because it tells us that the gospel should shape how we obey our parents and the gospel should shape how we parent our children. What does the gospel tell us about our Heavenly Father and the children of God who have been adopted into his family? Jesus reiterated this fact that God is a father to Christians. Christians are adopted by God. We are sons of God, not daughters, because daughters in those days had no inheritance. So, you know, when we read this passage and think, wait, now... We're, we're sons of God. The Bible always uses the term sons of God, and some of our modern translations changes it to children of God. Uh, I can understand why they do that. Uh, in, the old, in, in the Old and the New Testament, uh, the inheritance passed from father to son. Daughters didn't get an inheritance. It was up to them to marry some other, some other person's son, and they would share in the inheritance of their husband. It was a patriarchal-type society, and that's the way things were. So when Paul uh, calls men and women sons of God, he's actually not demeaning women. He's giving women a greater status than they had in the culture at that time. He's saying, women, 
and men are both equally going to receive an inheritance from God the Father. Their legal status is that of sons of God. If he said, you're sons and daughters of God, well, they would still be second-class citizens because that's the way they were treated in their culture. And they would say, well, if you're a guy, if you're a man, then being a son of God is better than being a daughter of God. Well, Paul says, no, you're all sons of God because you're all going to get God's great inheritance one day. In 1 John 3, in our translation, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. But I like the older translation of this verse better because it does exactly what I just was talking about. It says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. John is amazed, and I think the old version captures it better. He's amazed that God has showered his love down on his people by making them sons of God. And he's trying to be contagious with this amazement of what God has done for his people. God, the loving Heavenly Father, has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's taken homeless, helpless orphans and given them a home, and he has become a father of the fatherless as Psalm 68 puts it. Why does God do this? What kind of father is God? In Psalm 103, we read it for our assurance of pardon. It says that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And how does he show compassion? He forgives our iniquity. He heals our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. He works righteousness and justice for those who are oppressed. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't always chide. He doesn't keep his anger forever. Uh, and he doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. You know, God is a gracious, loving, heavenly Father slow to anger. And when he is angry, he doesn't remain angry forever. He does chide us when we need it, but he's not always chiding us, the psalmist tells us. That word chide means to, uh, to strive with someone, to, to argue or make a complaint with someone, uh, to conduct a, a, a legal case. And God did that. You can read the prophet, for example, Isaiah. And when God gave Isaiah a message to the rebellious people of Israel, uh, he would often give that message in the form of a lawsuit. He would outline the charges against Israel and say, you've done this, you've been unfaithful here, and here's how you've done it, and here's the consequences of that action. So he, he gave it to them in a form. He was chiding them, striving with them, wrestling with them, trying to show them their, their error. He was trying to correct them and show mercy to them. So yes, God sometimes gets angry when we go in the wrong direction, but he's not always angry, and he doesn't stay angry forever. He corrects us for our own good. See, Hebrews 12 says, quoting Proverbs, the writer of Hebrews says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God the Father, who abounds in Psalm 103 in tenderness, generosity, wisdom, and mercy, we are all children who have received all these benefits if we are his, if we are his children. Now, God's children, who are also earthly fathers and mothers, have particular responsibilities to image the Father by loving and guiding rather than domineering or neglecting their children. Both tenderness and teaching are ways both mothers and fathers image God the Father. That's how he treats us, and that's how we're called to treat our children. Now, specifically, he gives uh, parents uh, some, some negative, uh, a negative command and then a positive one. Do not provoke or make angry. Uh, God doesn't treat us that way. He's not harsh with us. He doesn't neglect us provoke us to anger that's not the kind of God he is and positively parents are to bring up the the word literally means to nourish or feed raising children is much like having a garden it takes a lot of time and nurture you got to plant you you got to prepare the soil you plow it fertilize it water weed and prune etc to yield a a crop if you leave it alone what's going to happen It grows weeds. You don't have to do any work to grow weeds. But parents are called to bring up, to nourish and feed their children spiritually. And discipline, it literally means correction, training, even by punishment. Children are sinners just like adults, and we have to raise our children in this manner to give them discipline. Instruction, warning, admonition, verbal education, Children need to be warned of danger, and children need to be admonished when they're wrong. But notice that it's of the Lord. The Lord is the one to whom the discipline belongs. The parent is the agent of God in the life of the child. And so the parent has that sort of responsibility to model God, to do the things that God does for us spiritually, to do that for his children physically. Now, children. The relationship of children to parents is controlled in the same way. Uh, we can think about we as children of God and the relationship God has with us, and we're called to be obedient, uh, to follow our Heavenly Father, to do what He calls us to do. And we have a great example of that, the greatest example of that in Jesus Christ. One of the hallmarks of Christ's life was His obedience. He, he obeyed, in one sense, as an example, but also as our substitute. First, as our example, we see him obeying his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Luke 2.51 tells us. John 6 tells us how he was obedient to his earthly father. I have come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me 
that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 8, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 14, Jesus said, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 18, Peter's in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, wielding his sword when the, the uh, cohort comes to arrest Jesus, and he cuts off the right ear of the high priest servant. That doesn't mean he was a great swordsman. He was trying to cut the guy's head off and missed Jesus says to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not carry out the Father's will? And then finally, Matthew 26, that great passage where Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, Jesus... Uh, was our example in that he was always obedient to the Father. But Jesus was much more than just a moral example. What's more important and what we need to grasp and, and, and take into our hearts is the fact that he did it as our substitute. None of us is a perfect father. None of us are perfect children. We've all fall short in, in obeying our earthly fathers and mothers and our heavenly Father. We all have failed as fathers to raise our children and mothers to raise our children in the training and instruction of the Lord. But Jesus came to do it for us. He came to be our substitute. The reason he obeyed is because he knew we had not and we will not and we cannot obey him perfectly. We were legally subject to a punishment because of that, eternal punishment because of that. And Christ came and fulfilled all obedience in our place so that we could be free from sin, from the punishment of sin and the guilt of sin. And where we have fallen short can be forgiven and cleansed and washed away. And we can be adopted into God's family and be his children. And God can start that work of training and instructing us and washing it and cleansing us and making us into the people that he would, he would have us to be. Making us into the the parents that he's called us to be, making us into the children that he's called us to be. Christ is our substitute. He is the ultimate son. The only solution to our parent-children problems is a reorientation to the gospel, a reorientation to the love of the Father in the gospel. When what he has done for you captures your heart and imagination, then you will be begin to be be the kind of parent and the kind of child he calls you to be. May God help us to grasp the gospel and live it out in our relationships. Let's pray together.